one more time. How, how do you end Israel's history and telling their story? How do you go about describing what is going to happen after we have observed essentially the book of Kings describing the absolute failure of Israel to be what God has wanted them to be? When you think about the framework of first and second Kings, it all began with the rise of Solomon to the throne. And it was all downhill from there. <laughs> and so now how do you end a book that is telling the story of Israel? How do you wrap it all up and telling here's what it is all about? And as we look at then what God is going to describe for us in this finale in regards to uh, Israel's history, we're going to see really what is a, a, a final picture of hope and talk about its clear message to us as God kind of closes this chapter of Israel's history and sends them off into exile and what God then wants for us to learn from that and learn about him and what would be our response to that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're in 2 Kings chapter 23. We left off with uh, Josiah last time and you will notice once you come to 2 Kings 23 and you start with your eyes in verse 31 and just scan your eyes from chapter 23 verse 31 to the end of chapter 24, you will notice that we are just going to quickly buzz the final four kings. They do not get much real estate. They don't get much time, even though you would perhaps think in regards to the final kings of Israel that these would be significant, that there'd be something to say about them, but there really isn't. We're, uh, start with Jehoahaz is given to us. He, he gets just a few verses. He only lasts for for three months, Pharaoh Necho comes along and takes him uh, into captivity. And Jehoahaz then uh, dies in Egyptian captivity. His son then is placed on the throne. His name is Eliakim, but his name is changed to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is recorded for us in verse 35, and he carries on into verse 6 of, of chapter 24. He gets an 11-year reign description, and like his father, we're simply told this. He also did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And during that time, the Babylonians come in, and they make their first invasion, and they take Jehoiakim away. His son Jehoiakim, which is always fun when the difference is the verbalization of an M and an N. Don't call him Jehoiachin. That's not how you say his name. It's Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. And so Jehoiakim takes the throne and his reign is extremely short. He does what's evil on the side of the Lord. Babylonians invade again and take him away into Babylonian captivity. And that leaves it for then an uncle to come along in Zedekiah. Zedekiah then uh, takes the throne and he is the final king for Israel. His term uh, is also not given much time at all. He does what's evil evil on the side of the Lord. And he also in this third invasion is carried off into captivity uh, a little bit more graphic in a number of ways. First, Jerusalem is bulldozed. The temple is destroyed. Zedekiah's children are killed before Zedekiah's eyes. Uh, Zedekiah's eyes are then poked out. So that'd be the last thing he saw. And then he's taken into captivity as well. Thus ends the story of the kings of Israel. That's, that's the end of, of all of them. Now, 
What I think is interesting is that that is really not the highlight of the text. You'll notice there are an awful lot of pages in here about things. Whereas when it comes to a description about the reign of these kings, there's not a lot of information about them. Instead, God has three big messages in these final two two and a half chapters that he wants us to hear about what is going on with Judah and Israel and these kings and what God intends for them. One repetition that I want us to see from this text that is very important is that over and again throughout this text, it is going to say that God was the reason why these things happened. You'll notice in 2 Kings 24 and in verse 2, it says there in chapter 24 and in verse 2, the Lord sent against him the bands of the Chaldeans, the bands of the Syrians, the bands of the Moabites, and the bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it. Text is going to make it very clear. God did this. Verse 2. Verse 3, if you missed it in verse 2, God says it again. Indeed, it came upon Judah at the command of the Lord, that God is the reason why this destruction is happening. When we come to Zedekiah's reign in chapter 24 and verse 20, it says there plainly, it was because of the Lord's anger that this happened in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out. One of the big things that God is wanting for his people to understand in these sequence of events is that what happened was not a series of unfortunate events. God did it. This was not wrong place, wrong time. Oh, those Babylonians, they got really strong. Or wow, these kings were kind of weak. Over and over again, the text says, God is the reason why this happened. Which means, what was supposed to happen was that when trouble comes, it's supposed to cause people to look to God. It's supposed to cause people to wake up and consider that these things may very well be at the hand of God. And that trouble would open people's eyes, turn them around, and look back to Him again. And not just simply say... What a series of unfortunate events. And yet so often that can be the human reaction is, well, just things are happening. And God is saying, I want you to look to me. And he's telling Israel here and telling the people, all of these events happen with what Nebuchadnezzar does and what the Babylonians do. And earlier with what Pharaoh Necho does with Egypt, all of those things are at the hand of God. Unless we suppose that that's just an anomaly only to the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. You might remember that the book of Daniel repeatedly hammers the point that God is behind the rise and fall of kings and that God is the reason why nations fall. And remember that the vast majority of Daniel's prophecies are about Gentile nations. Not merely what's going to happen to Israel and Judah, but listing out for generations, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Here's all the Gentile nations, and here's what they're going to do, and here's how powerful they will be, and then who will take over after that? It's all at the hands of God. And so one of the important points that this text is trying to get across to those who are listening to God is to look to God. 
and to recognize that he is behind the disaster and behind the destruction, which makes then what happens in this sequence really interesting. I want you to notice something in particular that is said there after describing in chapter 24, verse three, that these things indeed came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according all that he had done. Look at verse four. And also for the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And look how verse four ends. And the Lord would not forgive them. That ought to be a pretty scary line. When it come, you come to a passage that says, and the Lord was unwilling to forgive. And I think it's important that we take a step back and consider why why is the Lord unwilling to forgive? What is happening at this point? And I don't believe that we could say, well, um, all the people were trying to do what's right and God was just there with his arms crossed, not wanting to forgive them. You know, they were begging for forgiveness, but God was just a, a tyrant about these things and just was refusing to, to, to forgive. That's clearly not what we have seen with God. We have observed him forgiving astounding people in the face of all of the sins that they've committed. Never mind the fact that God was sending prophets all throughout this time in Israel and Judah's history, calling upon the people to repent. So clearly he didn't tell the prophets to go there and say, here's what I want you to tell them. Too bad. That was not their message. Their message was always repent, return before it's too late. Perhaps God will turn if you would just turn back to him. So clearly what we have before us is the issue that God would have forgiven, but you are given a picture here that the people would not. And what I think is particularly interesting is you will notice that verses three and four ascribe the problem of why God was unwilling to forgive to the sins of Manasseh. Why is that such a big deal? Why him? You might remember that we saw that Manasseh reigned for 55 years. 55 years of Manasseh's evil reign. His son, two years after that, followed in his dad's footsteps 57 years before Josiah comes to the throne and tries to bring about certain reforms. And I think the point that God is making by tacking these things back to Manasseh is to say the corruption at this point was irreversible. 55 years of that kind of person like Manasseh, where the text reminded us, filling the streets of innocent blood and bringing about all kinds of wickedness, restoring idolatrous worship to such a point that the worship was worse than the nations that were in Canaan before Israel had got there. It had become so corrupt that it could not be reversed and the nation was forever changed. By the way, that's not too hard to grasp, is it? That there are events and there are moments in the history of a nation that become irreversible 
and come to a point of great corruption that you will observe and say, there's no coming back from that now. We've seen that over the many decades of this country of various decisions being made, either by Supreme Court or leaders or whoever it may be that passes laws or upholds laws or adjudicates the laws where you see them as wet watershed moments. And you see it in culture where there are defining cultural shifts that become defining moments in which you're able to look at it and go, the corruption's irreversible. And that's where Judah was. 55 years of Manasseh's reign had made it to the point that the people were not going to seek God. They were not going to repent. They were not going to turn. They're going to persecute the prophets rather than listen to the prophets. And so God says, because of what Manasseh had done and all that had gone on in Judah's point at that during his reign, God was unwilling to forgive. I think it's important to see God brings about the destruction. God is the reason behind it. And there can be a point in a time in a nation's history where the corruption becomes irreversible. And it's only now a matter of time before these things happen. You know, I might consider that we see in chapter 23 of 2 Kings, Josiah attempts to bring the people back, but to no avail. And no sooner does uh, Josiah die that you'll notice that chapter 23, verse 31 puts Jehoahaz on the throne and he reigns three months. And within three months, the invasions are beginning first by Egypt and then Babylon right after that. As God said, your time is done. So big message number one, that God is the reason behind it and God is the reason for the judgment and God is the reason for destruction. The nation has gone too far. Number two, I think is important to see. One of the things I'd like for you to scan your eyes through in these final three chapters is to observe how there is only a little bit of space given to the description of the kings and far more about the events that happened during their reign, in particular, the invasions that took place. Rather than spending time talking about, here's all the things that the king did in chapter 24 in the first five verses, it's talking about the invasion. In chapter 24, verses 10 through 16, it talks about the next invasion and the things that were carried away and how the articles of the temple were captured and everything in Jerusalem being carried away and taken. And then you come to chapter 25 and you'll notice even the way the Bible breaks it up. If you look at chapter 24, verse 18, it says, Here's Zedekiah taking the throne. You probably have about that much space about Zedekiah. And it goes to chapter 25 and says what? The temple's been destroyed. And notice Zedekiah gets this much. But from verse 1 to verse 21, notice all the details about the destruction of the temple. Things like in verse 14, they took the pots and the shovels and the snuffers. And the dishes, you, you, the, the fire pans, you start reading this and this is kind of when your eyes start glazing over and you go, okay, they took everything, I got it. I, why are you giving me so much detail about they took every utensil, they took all the gold, they took all the bronze, they took it all, they took it all. Zedekiah gets this much final king of Judah, but here's the long list of everything that they took out of the temple. What's God doing? Why is God saying that? 
Well, it's important to be mindful of what the temple represents. It's important to keep in mind really what the temple is all about for the sake of time that I don't have. But if you remember back in first Kings chapter eight, pivotal, pivotal, important chapter, not only to Kings, but to many of the themes that are found throughout the scriptures. In 1 Kings 8, the temple is completed and Solomon has a dedication. And what he says about the relationship between God, the temple, and the people of Israel is really important. Because in summary, what you have Solomon saying is this temple represents the presence of God. And he even says... We can't build something that God can fit in. He's obviously not in a literal sense living in this place because God can't be in a place made by human hands. That's impossible. But it represents the presence of God. God with his people. It represented God living with his people. It was the place where you went to worship God. That was the the location where all of the hub of worship would happen. It was the place of fellowship where the people could come and meet God, where God was at. And the people could enjoy that fellowship with God. You might even remember that the text even tells there a long section about when the people sin... Pray toward the temple and God who is in heaven will hear their prayers and forgive their sins. Two important things about that. One, it's the place to pray toward. And two, that's where sins are going to be forgiven. So understand the meaning of the temple here is that the temple represents everything about God's relationship to his people. So significant that remember the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 10 has a vision of God leaving that temple and going out of the city and moving to a far mountain and allowing the city to be destroyed. Without the temple, God's not with his people. Without the temple, the people cannot worship God. Without the temple, the people cannot be forgiven. Without the temple, the people cannot be in fellowship with God or even pray to God as they ought. Essentially, it's all gone. And with the temple gone, the hopes of the people are gone. That's why there's so much said about the destruction of the temple. Because it represented a severing of relationship between God and his people. It was a severing of opportunity, a severing of worship, a severing of fellowship. Everything has been dismantled and it is all gone. And the people with their covenant and blessings appear that all hope is lost. It's gone. It's over. It's done. Which makes the ending of the book fascinating. Because I want you to flip to the end of 2 Kings. This is how the author of Kings wants to conclude. And the way that he concludes is stunning. Because you will notice that the ending is not about Zedekiah. Though you would think it would be. He was the last king of Judah. 
The ending is not about the various governors who tried to run the land from like verse 22 to verse 26 that you have Gedaliah and he runs for a little bit while, but no sooner is he governor that it sparks a bunch of chaos and they kill him and it's just a whole free for all and a mess. It's not about that. Notice what it's about. Verse 27, chapter 25, verse 27. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above all seats in the, of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. Now, is that not a strange ending? I see fans, so I wait for you because I'm always hot up here. (laughs) So if you're melting, you know what I'm doing. Why end with Jehoiakim? Why him? He only got three months in, 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 of a time of rain. Why is he so important? Why end the book on what's happening with Jehoiakim over there? Why not Zedekiah? Why not something else? I think there's three important reasons, and these reasons, I think, are pivotal to where we stand as the people of God today. Number one, the book ends with Jehoiakim because his survival is critical. The book ends with Jehoiakim alive in Babylon because his survival is critical. Now, you may not realize that he's a very important person. You'd kind of go, you know, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, you know, they're just all a bunch of names. But when you go to Matthew 1 in verse 12, this is the king line that initiates Christ's lineage. As the kings are listed out, you will notice that the son of Josiah is by name Jeconiah. And that is Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim needs to stay alive and have descendants so that there can be the Christ who will be attached to that king line, reaching all the way back to David. Jehoiakim is very critical then for that because it will be his sons that will ultimately bring a savior to the world. This is the first hope that this book is giving. This this small hope that's sitting here at the end of the book is number one. Jehoiakim's not dead. He's still alive in Babylon. And there's still hope for a king line that would be able to save not only Israel, but also the world. Number two, why Jehoiakim? Did you notice the amazing reversal that's given to him? Here is Jehoiakim who was taken off into prison. He's stuck in Babylon. You would think, well, there's no hope for him to ever have any kind of good treatment, right? 
certainly he's doomed over there in Babylon. And then you're told these stunning words that are given here. That here is this new king, evil Merodach. Okay, evil Merodach's the king, not Nebuchadnezzar. Evil Merodach becomes the new king and notice what he does. He graciously frees him from prison and speaks kindly to him and puts him in a new seat and gives him a seat of honor and lets him dine at the king's table regularly and gives him provisions and allowances. The whole picture of Jehoiakim suddenly doing well in captivity is an image that Israel's condition can be reversed. It's not over, even though they've gone into captivity, even though they go off into Babylonian captivity, their hope is not gone. There is still this outside hope that there could be a reversal, that the people could be set free and that the promises of God are not dead yet, which leads then to the final picture And really the most important picture that's given to us. What you have in Jehoiakim in verses 27 through 30 is Jehoiakim sitting in exile, sitting in prison, sitting in Babylon until a new king arises. And once the new king comes, the condition will radically reverse. Jehoiakim represents what the restoration template for Israel and for the whole world is going to be. Because the book is ending by saying, when a new king comes, he's going to graciously set the people free. When this new king comes, he is going to speak kindly. He's going to have compassion on the people, just like he did with Jehoiakim. When this new king comes, he's going to give the people a seat of honor of elevated status. Unbelievable that Jehoiakim, how would he get to that point? And yet he does. When the new king comes, he's going to call for the people to sit and dine with him. Jehoiakim's eating dinner with the king of Babylon. (laughs) Unbelievable. This is a captive. When the new king comes... Notice the very end is he's given a regular allowance. He's provided by the king every single day for all the days of their lives. Here is the template that's being put forward. You're waiting for a new king to come who is going to initiate all of these things. And guess how Matthew 1 opens? Here's your new king. Here is the king that you've been waiting for who is going to reverse your condition and enact all of these things. Now, I can't do Matthew 1 right now because I'd love to. Give me four weeks. We will. So we'll have to hold that there. But that's why Matthew starts the way he does. We're waiting for a new king who's going to reverse the condition and solve the problem. What I always love about what God does In every book, in every message, in every prophecy, is that there is always a message of hope. He always ends with a message of hope. Friends, 1 and 2 Kings is a book of disasters. 
It starts at Solomon and the wheels come off about three chapters in. It's just, it's over. It just falls apart for Israel from the very get-go. And what you are seeing is that here are a people who are wicked. They've sinned. They don't deserve to be in relationship with God. God has to cut them off, tear the temple down and say, you, you can't have forgiveness. You can't have relationship. You can't have worship. You can't do it. So off you go. And then turns around and says, but I'll try again soon. I'm going to try again. Even though God dwelling with his people appears to be a catastrophic failure from Genesis 3 to 2 Kings 25. God says, I'll do it again. And Matthew 1 is going to open with God with us there's always hope and God is constantly reaching out and saying your sins are not too much they're not too grave they're not too great you just need to turn back and belong to me there's always a whispering hope let's go to God in prayer heavenly father Lord, you are amazing that you would continue to extend your forgiveness, your love, and your hope to the whole world, even though we have over and over and over again rejected you. Lord, for thousands of years, the vast majority of people have rejected you, and we are amazed that you still love us. You still reach out to us and you still call us. Lord, your patience is stunning. Your love is unimaginable. And Lord, we thank you for never giving up on us and for being faithful, even though we have been faithless. Thank you, Lord, for continuing to seek a relationship with us. And thank you for sending your son to make it possible that wretched sinners like us would be able to be in relationship with you. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. By the way, if I had half an hour more, you know all that stuff we said about the temple? Place of worship, place of forgiveness, where God meets his people, all that stuff? John 2, Jesus comes and says, I'm the temple can't come to God, come to the Father, unless you come through me. I'm the one. I'm your king. I'm your savior. I'm your rescuer. Your hope is in him. I want you to think about that tonight. If we can help you come to the Lord and turn away from sin and find your hope and find your freedom and find your rescue in him, we want you to do that tonight. Won't you come while we stand and while we stand?